Okay, so before I answer, is there someplace else you'd rather go? <laughs> I, and don't say Venus, because I tried to disavow you of that. I don't, I've never really thought about it. So then why are you way. asking me about Mars? <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're complaining that Mars is showing up and you have no other idea about where to go. I would like to stay here, but I would just then like stay to stay here. Well, <laughs> the rest of us will go to Mars. <laughs> Nobody's going to drag your ass to Mars if you don't want to go. From Topic and Airwolf, this is Politically Reactive. I'm W. Kamau Bell. And I'm former middle school 172 honor roll student, Hari Kondabolu. We're two comedians trying to make sense of politics in America. Well, this week, we're going to try to make sense of the universe. Huh? Oh, that's probably not going to go as well. No. Today's guest has an asteroid named after him. It's called 13123 Tyson. It orbits between Mars and Jupiter. Nope, our guest is not heavyweight boxer Mike Tyson. That's correct. (laughs) It is not Mike Tyson. It's astrophysicist. And director of the Hayden Planetarium, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil started giving lectures on astronomy when he was just 15 years old. Here he explains how the universe works while eating spicy wings on First We Feast. The top four ingredients in life, in your body, top four atoms in order, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, those four atoms. Do you know what the top ingredients are in the universe? The top four chemically active atoms in the universe? Hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen. The top four ingredients in Politically Reactive are funny, 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 mean. Hari brings the mean part. I'm not mean, dummy. It's all coming up on Politically Reactive. Hey, Hari. How's it going, man? It's going all right. I got up at 4 a.m. this morning so I could do this podcast and other things. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Is it, though? (laughs) Is it? No. Also, uh, we just want to say thank you to all our listeners. I hate to call it listeners. All the people out there who listen to the show. Uh, Thank you for emailing, tweeting, Facebooking, Instagramming, and even now calling us. We really do love hearing from you, and we've gotten some great guests' ideas and show ideas from you. And also, thank you for sending us great tips. Wait, how come um, you draw a distinction between listeners and people who listen to the show? Listeners sounds just like like we're in the we're like on the quiet storm in the '80s or something. Like, thanks to the listeners out there, it just doesn't sound very. It doesn't sound like they're fully formed people who, in part of their day, happen to listen to the show. Huh? You and I differ in how we view them. <laughs> That's true. That is true. One of the tips we got, Natasha told us about the upcoming March for Racial Justice on September 30th in Washington, D.C. According to the March for Racial Justice, the vision is to create a just and equitable future for communities of color so that we may all thrive together. That sounds like a good idea. To find out more, visit m4rj.com. That's the letter M, the number four, the letter R, the letter J.com. M4RJ.com. Also, Taylor emailed us the other day and recommended we add the names of organizations and resources mentioned on the show to our website, which is a great idea, and we're going to make that happen. See, that that's what I like out of our listeners. Our listeners listen. <laughs> and so they want to know what we have to say because they will listen to us. 
That's I think our listener. This was a, a listener who contributed, so I think it was more than just listening. Hari, they would to like to contribute and build build the world into a better place, not just listening to you're right. your tour dates. I'm not giving our listeners enough credit. That's right. That's oh boy. And also another tip: a while back, a teacher named Emily emailed us about sharing an episode with her computer science class. Uh, she asked if we had a clean. <laughs> non-expletive-laden <laughs> version of our interview with Nicholas Weaver. Uh, we don't, uh, but we can look into making that happen. <laughs> Think about how absurd, just, I feel so terrible, because it's like, yes, uh, you did an interview with a privacy expert, Nicholas Weaver. Do you have a version that isn't filled with obscenities? I kind of feel like he he might have been the most obscenity-filled, but I who knows? Oh, my God, that's right. He did curse a lot. Yeah. So, uh, Emily, I guess I'm being told by the producers we're going to work to uh, send you a a bleeped version of that show. We should probably just bleep all the shows while we're at it. <laughs> it would make some of the shows <laughs> quite hard to hear, like in, like when they uh, edited rap in the 90s. You know, We'll just do that thing where they did in like, uh, old Dr. Dre albums when on MTV they played the video, and it would just be like, so I went down to the... <laughs> all up in the club. <laughs> God, I, I love I, instead of like coming up with another version or another word. Yes, yeah, yeah. I love. I, re- I just remember it was like, <laughs> it's all about the Benjamins, baby. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what? What's all about the Benjamins? I don't understand what you're talking about. It's very unclear. What is the point in putting out the song if you're not going to hear the song? Yeah. And then one more person we need to actually shout out. This isn't really a tip, although we were tipped off by his tweet. Uh, Brian P. Duss. I'm going to assume that's D-U-S-S, Duss, maybe Deuce. Uh, He tweeted, Area Man shows his displeasure by loitering in branded T-shirt. Hashtag at Politically Reactive, at Harikondabolu, at WKMBL. Hashtag Bethlehem. Hashtag hold up, wait a minute. And it's a picture of him wearing a Politically Reactive T-shirt at the wall in in uh, Bethlehem, apparently. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah, and it's he's standing in front of like a picture of, of Donald Trump uh, apparently touching the wall with a with a yarmulke on. Uh so which I know there's another word for yarmulke, but I can't remember what it is right now. But yeah, so it's like he's <laughs> it looks like Donald Trump is saying, Hold up, wait a minute. But that's amazing. That's one of the greatest uh pictures that's been sent to us. I mean all the way from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I mean... That is exciting. I've been all throughout Pennsylvania, but I've never been to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, so this is really a big deal. I'm waiting for people to tweet at us, it wasn't <laughs> Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. <laughs> what are you, stupid? <laughs> what kind of serious talk show is this? <laughs> I guess I'm just going to say thanks, Brian, for sending the tweet. We appreciate it. Hari, back to yelling at the listeners. But I didn't even ask you, man. How's your Emmy doing? Oh, my Emmy's fine. I don't know if this had happened before. Had Juno already broken the lock on the box? Had, I, had that already happened? Yeah, yeah, you had mentioned okay. that Juno okay. had <laughs> So it's still, it's still in uh, one piece. But it's funny. It's sort of just sitting in the house. Like, it's in the box. Which is just, it's not sitting in a special place because we haven't figured out what to do with it yet. So it's just like, like you would walk into my house and be like, what's in that box? Some, uh, some old shoes? No, an Emmy. Uh, wait, we still haven't figured out how are you going to get the other three awards? <laughs> like, you need to get a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. The Grammy, you could probably get off a comedy record. Yeah, yeah. That's the easier one. 
I feel like the Oscar and the Tony will probably come from producing. Yeah, that's let's be honest. That's be, like I like I send some money to some indie drama that it like on Kickstarter, one of those things where like right. if you send us two hundred dollars, you can be an executive producer, and then that indie drama ends up you know winning the Best Picture Oscar, and then I'm on stage with five hundred people. <laughs> But do you, I mean, you know Barry Jenkins, don't you? I do know Barry Jenkins. He probably doesn't need my help anymore. Barry Jenkins, the, the writer-director of Moonlight, he probably doesn't need my help anymore. <laughs> well, it's not about him needing your help. This is about you needing his That's help. That's true. That's true. I just should say, hey, man, do you need an extra uh, unpaid but named executive producer on your next project? I won't give any feedback. You just make the film you want to make. I just want to get an Oscar. Drop him a couple of grand for the movie and put 50 in for me. Okay, all right. All right. So much. Like, I got five on it. I got five on that Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have a great guest on the show today, Neil deGrasse Tyson. You already know who he is, but if you don't, he's an incredible astrophysicist. He is at the Hayden Planetarium, also has the show Star Talk on the National Geographic Channel, and has a book out called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. We're obviously very huge fans of his, and we find out during this interview how big a fan he is of me. Yes. <laughs> very exciting. It is very exciting. Spoiler alert, the return of Kamau and Company. This interview was recorded on September 13th, 2017. On this day in 1993, Queens, New York made recycling mandatory. Yes, it is completely working. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for doing this today. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we're definitely going to um, talk about your book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. But before we get to that, um, Neil, I'm very scared. How close are we to the end? Uh, it depends on which end you're referring to. There's Tell the... me about both ends. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it in that way. <laughs> the front end or the back end. Right, right, right. <clears throat> There's the, the zombie apocalypse. Okay. The, yeah, it depends on which apocalypse you're referring to. The asteroid apocalypse. Um, I the... mean, the nuclear one is the one that's in the forefront of my mind. Oh, nuclear. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm old enough to have lived through the Cold War. Yeah. I don't feel greater tension, nuclear tension today than I did basically every day growing up. So... Now, that's just my feeling. I, I don't know that I can verify that right. from the, the platform of international politics. Right. But consider <laughs> that there was a day where it was just a natural thing where kids would practice ducking under their tables yeah. uh, in the schoolroom, the duck and cover exercise. And you knew where your local fallout shelter was. And the community um, uh, air raid sirens all worked. That's We don't live under those times now. So uh, it's possible... Uh, it's easy to think that you're in uniquely dangerous times, but I, I don't really think that. I try to keep a very long baseline of view. I will add to that, given all the violence that we see in the world, um, consider, and by the way, I bring what I would call a cosmic perspective to that question, right? So uh, consider that if a, if a truck plows through a plaza, a crowded plaza of people, and two dozen people die, that's headlines around the world today. And justifiably so. It's tragic, and typically it's a terrorist attack. But remember that during the Second World War, between 1939 and 1945, if you run the numbers, 1,000 people were killed per hour in the cause of that war. 1,000 per hour. 
Yet there were no such headlines tallying those deaths. It was, oh, we've advanced on this front. Oh, we've done this. So we've captured this territory. So uh, I would say that the fact that 20 people die in a terrorist attack makes world headlines is itself evidence that we are in a safer time compared with days with, such as the second, the first and second world war, where thousands of people were dying, if, if not daily, if not hourly, like in the second world war, certainly daily in the first world war. I feel a sort of existential peace I have not felt ever in my life right now. <laughs> I just wonder, where do you want me to send the check? I'm ready to write it. So it's just, it's how to contextualize what might otherwise be a concern you have. I raked over the calls when I said to people before the solar eclipse, uh, I said, you know, whatever people are telling you, if they tell you it's rare, just, you know, get a hold of yourself because they're not. All right. <laughs> solar eclipse, total solar eclipses happen somewhere in the world between every 18 months and, and every two years. They are more common than the Olympics. Right? <laughs> and no one says, rare Olympics coming up, rare Olympics. And they're scattered all around the world like the Olympics is, right? right. You, don't, you don't always go to where the Olympics is, but somebody's filming it and they bring it to you. Right. So people like thinking that cosmic phenomena when they happen in their own lifetimes means they're in special times. Uh, but the universe is t 14 billion years old. It's not likely that right, something right, right, happening right. in your lifetime is special. Now, it's different if you influence the flow of natural events. So if we start, um, you know, as we have been, uh, pumping CO2 into the atmosphere, greenhouse gases, on a level that the Earth hasn't seen in millions of years, uh, we will alter the ecosystem in which we are embedded. And in that way, we are actually the cause of, uh, of challenges and problems that, that confront us. Um, your book is called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. How come you chose not to call it Astrophysics for Dummies? Was it a legal thing or was this Well, so first of all, that other title was taken. <laughs> so, but other than that, uh, I think if you read the book, yeah. you will realize it's not for dummies. Okay. It's for curious people. So there's re it's real astrophysics. I don't, as they say, pull any punches in there. It's, it's real astrophysics, but it's packaged in a way. It's, it's packaged for people who don't have much time but remain curious cosmically curious. Huh. And what I've done is I've handpicked some of the most mind-blowing things that I know of in the universe, across the universe, and I've collected them in this series of chapters. And it's this it's this curation of what is mind-blowing that I think would distinguish this book from others. Where as an educator, you might have the urge, well, here's a curriculum and here's a syllabus and I'm going to teach you about this phenomenon and why. And, and I'm saying, let me just cherry pick this. <laughs> so, because I have books for when you're not in a hurry. I got big books. Right, 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 right. I got those books. Right, right. So if you read this book and you say, whoa, <laughs> I want more, then I hand out the big book. I got a big book called uh, Welcome to the Universe, an astrophysical tour. I have two co-authors on that, and it's based on a course the three of us taught at Princeton University. And we just came out with a problem book on that, too. So we, I got you. I got, if you really are uh, ready to take this to the limits, I got other stuff for you. Quick, uh, quick side note: I am now changing my relationship status to cosmically curious. Oh, nice! That we got to add that, make that a choice. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. So, Neil, the last time I saw you, uh, I don't know if you saw me, but we were we were both at the Creative Arts Emmys. 
I doubt. How could I not see you? How could I not see you? You were winning an Emmy, okay? You, you winning an Emmy. Oh, I, I assume you, you left. I assume you left by that point. I just assumed by the. I was the very end of the whole evening, so I didn't. I didn't realize you were still there. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I was still there with with my people. We did not win the Emmy, but the uh, our show Star Talk was, uh, which is a talk show that's based in science. Do you realize it is the first ever science based talk show on television? Ever is that true? No, we didn't. We didn't. We didn't create the show wanting to set that record. But yes, it is. I feel like I'm not that surprised by that, considering what talk shows generally are. <laughs> like I feel like that doesn't. Well, yeah. So actually, well, yeah. On on brief reflection, you realize. So here's why I think it was able to jump species because we were a radio show podcast and still are. What happens is we make one a week, so it's 50 shows a year, and National Geographic Channel. Uh, basically airlifts 20 of those to television. They'll cherry pick which ones have the best guests and things, and that's fine. We don't have a problem with that. So that's the show. Now, I think the reason why it jumped species is we inverted the model. The model is not the journalist interviewing the scientist. You get that on Science Friday right. and some other sort of time-honored programming. Uh, but those shows tend to attract people who already know they like science. You'll tune in no matter who the scientist is because you know there's just going to be some kind of science right. that you're and you're you like science and so you check it out. But I said thought to myself, what about the people who don't know that they like science, huh. or better yet, the people who are pretty sure that they don't like science? Huh. How do you get science to them? So what you got to do is you got to trick them. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> so what Star Talk does is we have a a um my I'm the host. I'm the scientist, and our guest is hardly ever a scientist. It's a person typically hewn from pop culture. And then I have a conversation with that person about all the ways science has touched their lives. Hmm. And then you realize science has touched everyone's life in some way or another, either just your life or your livelihood or your, your ambitions. You know, with the announcement recently of finding, what they say, 120 other... Oh, no, so 1,200. 1,200. Exoplanets out there. Okay. So that didn't make me feel better, I will tell you. Because I don't know where those planets, where they are, what are they doing? Or where they Who's been. on <laughs> Who's on And so it's a general conversation about science, but you would have possibly followed that celebrity to the show because you're a fan of theirs. Because, right. like I said, they're hewn from pop culture. And so only in Star Talk, we're very proud of this, the range of guests we've had uh, include in this coming season Katy Perry. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Whoa. It's like, whoa. <laughs> you just got whoa. you just got my yeah, six year old Katie. to tune in. I'll let me say that. She's she's definitely tuning okay. in. Okay. I uh, got Katy Perry, got Kareem Abdul Jabbar. <gasps> and what we do here is we also explore to see if the guest has any sort of hidden geek underbelly. And this is where we learned that did you know this? <laughs> that Kareem Jabbar, um, he he wanted to be more in movies. And I said, what? what? Like, what character would you be playing? You're, you're nine feet tall. What do you do? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Uh, he said, uh, I've always wanted to be Chewbacca. And it was like, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Why did I think of that? Now I feel bad. Right, Somebody right. should have included this man. Yeah. Oh, because, you know, he was in the movie Airplane. Yes. Uh, as one of the pilots. Was he uh, Roger Over or Over Under? Oh. He was one of the pilots. <laughs> All right, but just remember, my name is Roger Murdoch. I'm an airline pilot. I think you're the greatest, but my dad says you don't work hard enough on defense. 
So we like to think of Star Talk as a geek safe space for people who you never knew uh, had this exhibited within them. So this is another way we're trying to just bring the universe down to earth. But with, with astrophysics for people in a hurry, it really is, it's, it's not, getting back to your question, uh, it's not watered down. It's real astrophysics, but it's a, in a packaged in a way that you could probably read the whole thing on a cross-country airplane ride, is my guess. Wow. Wow. And, and, and for, I'm happy to say they're for sale at Hudson Books <laughs> before oh. you get on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing I'm sort of happy about is that when I go to Amazon and look at my book, The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell, it often says, bought with this book is your book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. So, <laughs> <laughs> I feel well, like, Whoa, so there's some coattail sales going on there. Yeah, I feel like, I feel, I feel like I'm in good company, so thank you. Yeah, 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 that's right. Just a, just a bunch of smart black guys writing smart books. Actually, th my book came out on, in May, and it's been on the New York Times bestseller list ever since. And it bobs up and down depending on whose book lands. You know, if you get a celebrity pundit or something and they have heavy media, you can land the book almost anywhere. So it, what matters for this book is that it's had staying power on the list. Mm. I'm happy to say even as late as September, the book had, had returned to number one, bobbing up and down, changing places with other books. But it means there's a real interest out there. And in my field... Uh, come out. We celebrate any time there's a science book anywhere on the bestseller list <laughs> because that never happens. How often does science become the topic, right? It's always a celebrity tell-all or, or a political pundit or a athlete's memoir. So I would have I would have cheered even if I hadn't written this. And but on top of that, it's been coming in at number one. So we've been uh, I've, I've just been the publisher certainly happy. And so to the extent come out that that you. People find your book and, you know, because it's somehow they're, they're linked by Amazon. Um, what, what, there must be like a, a, a big black man. You know, who knows what yeah. the algorithms yeah. are yeah. in modern Amazon. <laughs> if it's you two and then Jim Brown, then there's something. Oh, going yeah, yeah. On. Jim yeah. Brown's memoir, you know, <laughs> it's like big black man. You know, we live in this time where, and I've heard you talk about this before, that you feel like there's always been the same number of people who are who are either ignorant to science and think they know, or anti-science, but now they have the ability to write blogs and go on social media, so we hear from them more often, and they get a lot more confirmation bias. But to me, it also feels like we just went through a thing with Barack Obama where sort of smart and cool were sort of in vogue in the country, and now we're at a different era in America where smart and cool is not in vogue. Do you feel that personally? So, so first, I agree with your your assessments there that uh, Barack was smart and cool, okay, and that had some currency in its day. And being smart and cool means you have a, a large vocabulary set you can draw from when you give speeches. Uh, that is clearly not the case today. Uh, uh, and so, what's going on? And I, I will say this: it's too easy for the smart, cool people to blame the not smart, not cool people for whatever are the travails of the time. But there's an, another side of this, is if you're smart and you're cool, what is your attitude about that fact? Is, it, is your attitude off-putting to the people who are sort of less educated than you or less cool than you? As old as I am, it's not that far back in my memory when there I am not so cool as the cool people in high school because I'm kind of nerdy, and they had all the social life, and they were better looking, and they, and you know, to feel like an outsider to those 
who are or have access, I think never is a good thing. And so uh, I think the, the the smart, cool people have to shoulder some of this accountability for the alienation of those who were not. And especially, I think the big divide there is not even whether you're cool, but it's sort of the educated versus you know, the, the, the undereducated. And that's kind of how things divided, right? Was it rural versus urban? It was, you know, it wasn't so much north-south in spite of the issues with statues we're having over the last several months, um, in particular over the last several months. It's, oh, it's been there for decades, of course. But um, if you look at sort of exposure level and education level, uh, the nation divides that way as well. So, so I think... Uh, it's the, the the tribalism that brings people together thinking they are better than others never is a good solution, particularly in a pluralistic country where we all got to get along and we all have to agree on what legislation is in the best interest of the entire nation. I mean, this doesn't appear to be a pro-science administration. Um, how bad are things going to get with regards to how science is going to be treated, underfunded, like there are things we don't know about, but how bad is it going to get? I'll give you the third worst thing because I can't tell you the worst thing because okay. you won't ha- you you can't handle it. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, no. Donald Trump, above all else, we think, mm. is a businessman. You you can quibble with how he makes business decisions, but he's more a business person than he is a politician. So that always left me with a glimmer of hope that one could explain to him the causes and effects of decisions he's making relative to the the health, the security, and the wealth of the nation. Because business people make hard, blunt decisions regarding each of those three things, especially with regard to wealth. Mm. So if I say, you need to invest in this way, in science, technology, engineering, and math, so that the future of your country is economically secure, and here's how to invest, and here's the ROI, right, the return on that investment, that's language a business person should be able to understand. My sense is, if he makes a decision that is not in the economic interest of the country, but that he thinks it is, is because he hasn't had that explained to him, or doesn't yet understand it, but that if he does understand it, he then would make the very simple economic decision that you don't want to bankrupt the future of your country. You don't eat your seed corn. You don't assume that you'll just invent something later to solve everything. It requires earlier term investments Mm. in what that will become. So that's the kind of hope that I have going forward in spite of everything you've seen uh, go on in the administration. Also, uh, there are people who are want to beat Trump over the head for all of his decisions he's making when you realize it's exactly what he said he was going to do. It's yeah. what he promised his electorate. So he says, "I'm going to do. I'm going to build a wall, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to. I'm going to do that. Now he didn't fulfill all of those promises, and some he did the opposite of it. It's not clear that he actually drained the swamp of what he accused it of having, for example. But and he accused Hillary of being in bed with with Wall Street, and then he brings Wall Street people in. So I get that, and whatever that is. But the rest of what he's promising, now he's acting on it. And people are saying, how could you possibly do this? Well, these are the people who voted him into office. Mm. That's how democracy works. You don't have to like it, but it's democracy, mm. right? So uh, that's why his supporters, uh, not I think as many as who first elected him into office, but he still has very strong supporters where he's telling them exactly what they want to hear and doing exactly what they want him to do. So the solution is 
you vote for somebody else into office next time. And if you can't get enough votes, um, that's again, that's how democracy works. You need enough votes to get the person, get your person into the office. And if your person and you and all your your people are somehow resented by the people voting against you for whatever reason, then that's what you're going to have to deal with, mm. not only in life, but during election times. I hear what you're saying about the uh, you have to get enough votes, but then I feel like we have to have a separate discussion about the science behind the Electoral College and why that seems anti <laughs> anti-science. Did you actually use the sentence science behind the Electoral College? Yeah, that, it's, a, it's a thing I'm working actually on. Actually, come out of your mouth? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a thing. It's a new thing I'm working on. Uh, so what I do know is people complain most about the Electoral College when it doesn't go their way. You know, for example, John Kennedy winning against Richard Nixon, he barely won in the popular vote. If you look at the numbers of popular vote, it was like, whoa, this is, this is not even really a mandate. But then you look at the Electoral College, it was a landslide. He won all the sexy places, New York and California and Florida. He, and so you say, well, this is a mandate. Well, not really. Basically, half the country did not want the 42-year-old handsome guy from Massachusetts. Mm. So, but it's, that election is not remembered that way because he did become a beloved president and he launched the space program, something I think the nation is quite proud of. And I don't even think I'm biased as I say that. <laughs> Why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So I, don't, I didn't hear anybody saying back then, we need to rethink the Electoral College because his landslide win it misrepresents the actual vote. So if we're gonna be honest about our political critique, you should find all the cases in which you might have, could have, or didn't, or would have, or, or could have, and put it all out on the table, all the laundry on the table, and see what the total consequences are. My understanding of the Electoral College was it gave greater significance to states that had low population. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, nobody campaigns in Wyoming. Nobody campaigns in Montana. Um, uh, the fact that they have two senators, okay, representing two votes out of the... Uh, that's more voting than their population would, as a fraction of the population of the country would otherwise bring, makes them more significant than they otherwise would be. I, and if I were a resident of Montana, I'd feel pretty good about that. We'll be right back after we take care of some business. And some business. All right, back to the show. How come every, at least the last three administrations, has been focused on Mars in some way? Mars keeps coming up. Wait, like, wait, wait, where do you want to go? Where, want to go to Venus? It's 900 degrees <laughs> well, Fahrenheit <laughs> on Venus. Well, it's less you, you would vaporize <laughs> on contact. No. I, I did the calculation. Yeah. Uh, Venus would cook, if you take a 16-inch pepperoni pizza and put <laughs> it on the windowsill, it would cook in nine seconds. Right. Okay? Now, if you think that's geeky, tell me you think that's geeky. To calculate that. 
That's geeky. Well, yes, that's, but that's why we have you on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Come out. Yes, I agree. That's geeky. Someone out geeked me with that calculation. Said, <laughs> Doctor Tyson, you're wrong. You neglected this other source of heat, which is the radiant infrared heat from the atmosphere itself, rather than just the thermal temperature of the molecules. Okay. <laughs> So if you include that radiant heat, it'll cook in like three seconds. Right. So so what what destination do you have in mind if not Mars? Oh no no it, was, it wasn't <laughs> less about. It, my question wasn't like how come we're not. Well, you want to visit the sun? Well no. Yeah, you can do that at night. <laughs> it's a little safer at night if you visit the sun. I'm hoping we can salvage <laughs> the one we got. So I'm less concerned about that. But my question more is how come we're so fascinated with going to Mars, and how come like even Trump talked about like. Mars as a thing is it part of me kind of and this is the conspiracy theory part thinks like is it that we're inheriting the earth and the rich people are going up to Mars like why is Mars such a fascinating thing that we invest money in and that we want to go to okay so before I answer is there someplace else you'd rather go <laughs> I, and don't say Venus because I tried to disavow you of that I don't. I've never really thought about. So then, why are you asking me about Mars? <laughs> it's like you're complaining that Mars is showing up, and you have no other idea about where to go. I would like to stay here, but I would just then like stay to here. Well, well, the rest of us will go to Mars. Nobody's going to drag your ass to Mars if you don't want to go. I, I, I would go. I'm not against going. I'm just. <laughs> It's got contentious. What? Wow. I d <laughs> do you know something we don't know about Mars? Probably, but what is it? <laughs> you know, Definitely. Well, so Absolutely. Why, 100% why know something about Mars we don't know. I know that it's... It has I'll, I'll ask you a question for you. Okay. How did it come to be? Yes. How did it come to pass that Mars uh, became the object of our space faring affection? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's... I just re-asked your question. Is that, that, right? that is a great question I asked, yes. Okay. So here's, here's some interesting facts. Mars rotates once every 24 hours, approximately, within, right. within a few minutes of that. That's kind of intriguing, mm. right? So a day on Mars is about a, like a day on Earth. Mars, Mars's rotation axis is tilted, just like Earth's axis is tilted. We're tilted 23 and a half degrees. I forgot the exact amount Mars is tilted, but it's something similar to that. And it's the tilt of our axis that gives us our seasons. So Mars has seasons as well. Mm. Mars has polar ice caps, as we currently do. <laughs> uh, Mars does not have an atmosphere worth much breathing. There's no oxygen in it. Mostly carbon dioxide, but it's very thin. Um, but uh, Mars is very cold. It's easier to keep ourselves warm than it is to keep ourselves cool. So though Venus is very hot and Mars is very cold, it's better to go to Mars and make heat than it is to go to Venus and make yourself cool. Right. It's just easier to accomplish this. So Mars also has evidence of having once had liquid water coursing all over its surface. There are riverbeds, dried riverbeds that meandered that meant there were slow-moving rivers, and they're slow-moving for a long time because fast-moving rivers don't meander, all right? Meandering riverbeds, floodplains, river deltas. Um, you, you, you look at imagery over Mars, and it looks like the Midwest when you're flying over it. Huh. All the carvings that water has done to it, you find that on Mars. So there's so many elements of it that are, so many aspects of it that resemble Earth that you ask, if we were to become a multi-planet species, you're going to pick Mars before you'll pick any other planet to do so. I mean, in the history of human exploration, at least on this planet, it usually ends up being uh, something for exploitation or for colonization. 
So is that a long-term idea with Mars? Is this to try to get more resources like we have in the history of this planet? Or is it like the long-term, we're going to live up there? It could be either or both. I bet first it would be as a place for resources. Uh, and I, I don't feel bad about that. The universe is vast. Mm. And by the way, Mars might not even be the best place to get resources. We have asteroids. You, you, you've heard of rare earth elements, which yes. are very important for technology and other sort of applications of our modern life. Well, what's that name? They're called rare earth elements. <laughs> they're asteroids where they're not rare. They're common asteroid elements. So if you find the right asteroid that's metal rich, you can mine that. In fact, uh, by some measures, the first trillionaire in the world will be the person who first exploits the natural resources of comets and asteroids. And then, so you get to Mars, um, I don't see why people wouldn't exploit it for whatever resources it might have, but you'd also uh, choose it as an interesting destination, either as a tourist or to do science experiments. Uh, if, if you're gonna search for life, it once had liquid water. Uh, wherever there's liquid water on Earth, we have life. So it's a tantalizing target for the search for life. Not there today, we don't think, but if there's evidence deep in the soils, fossilized uh, life, uh, that would be one of the greatest discoveries in the history of science. Life with a separate genesis from that of our own. Huh. Ooh. And, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. So, so Mars is just a fascinating target, much to the chagrin of moon people. Right. I have some people, some geologists who love themselves some moon. Do you think, I mean, when, Colonialism happened, there was companies. Companies set up, they went to different places, they set up camp and eventually kind of ran, ran the thing. Do you imagine the future of, of, of a place like Mars being run by capitalism? Just private companies setting up shop. Yeah, so there's, uh, capitalism is what is the common word we use today in the United States. Mm. But there was a day when people weren't thinking so much about capital. There was mercantilism, right. where you traded goods and, and services, this sort of thing. So what you really mean, I think, is will there be economic incentive driving this rather than either hegemonistic incentive or anything else? And uh, keep in mind that the first person to pitch tent on Mars is not going to be any kind of corporate entity. Right. My read of history empowers me to say that with very high confidence. There is no business model doing it first if it's highly expensive, dangerous, and has no has an uncertain return on investment. Once it's done and you pitch tent, a, a nation typically does this, and this can happen under colonistic motives, by the way. Mm. But once a nation does it, they can tell you, here's the danger spots, here's the trade winds, here's the friendlies, here's the hostels, here's the food, here's the starvation. Then a business can say, all right, now I know where the risks are. Let me mitigate that. I can get investors. I can get a sense of the, re the return on investment. And now I'll do it. Right. That's exactly what happened. after you know The first European to the New World was not the Dutch East India Trading Company. It was Columbus. Yeah. Then the Dutch East India Trading Company came behind him. So, yeah, I don't see why that wouldn't happen. Uh, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the film 2001, A Space Odyssey. What that attempted to do... Uh, by the way, the film was 1968, imagining a world in 2001, uh, way in the future, 2001. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. They portrayed a future where 
every bit of the experience, almost every bit, was brought to you by a corporate entity. Huh. So Pan Am was the space shuttle that got you to the space station. Pan Am, a now defunct airline, of course. Uh, there was Howard Johnson's, which was, a, I guess that was a hotel on the space station. AT&T was the phone booth that you used to call Earth. Um, and there were a couple of other, uh, IBM, through the guise of Hal, was a, because they used the same typeface that IBM used. Right. Uh, plus Hal, those three letters, are the letters that precede IBM in the alphabet. I don't know if people knew that. Yeah, little, little, you didn't know that. <laughs> I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, IBM and HAL. Anyhow, by the way, uh, IBM declines any association with this because Hal was a homicidal maniac in that right, movie. Was... Right, right. So there's all these disclaimers, but I'm not convinced by their disclaimers. But anyhow, so that imagined a future where corporations were a participant in enabling the that frontier to, uh, to be lucrative. And... Uh, sure, otherwise you're just uh, levying tax money on people to do this. And then then it stays a space program its entire existence rather than a space um, industry. And that's the distinction between the two. Hold up, wait a minute. Hey, everybody. I know it seems like I've been quiet for a while, but what happens is that the phone line for some reason went down, so they didn't hear all the witty, smart things I was saying. Anyway, let's get back to Neil deGrasse Tyson making Hari feel not so smart about Mars. What he didn't say is that I bitch slapped him the whole time. The whole about time. About not thinking about Mars. So I guess my question is, you know, AI, as we've seen in science fiction, is this thing that is wide ranging and fully integrated in our lives. But then in reality, we get Siri. And like, so is, it, is, is, is that thing coming, that thing that, with AI, is that really in our lifetime something that we will be fully be integrated the way you see it in the movies? So I think, yes, it is coming, but I don't think it's coming with the abruptitude that people are suggesting. They're imagining that some AI robot emerges from the garage, connects to the internet, and then takes over the world decides that the world would be far better off without humans and exterminates us all. That, you know, that's the, of course I exaggerate, but that's, that you know that's in people's minds. Yes, yes, of and course, of course. I, I remain fearless of AI. And, I do, and this is because the way we've brought computing power into the world, it has been in the service of our needs. And it's, so for example, uh, we, if you look at old uh, 1950s and 60s imaginations of the future, there's a humanoid robot and you'd say, okay, robot, could you take me to my office? And the robot would get in the car and the robot would drive the car. Hmm. No one imagined that the car itself would be the robot. The car is driving you, not a robot in the shape of a person sitting where you would have driving the car. Hmm. So... So my, my point there is computing power tends to be parceled in precisely the way we need it and want it in the service of our needs and wants. Not just some all powerful thing popping out that can think any thought that anybody wants. That's just not what anybody's doing. That's not where we're coming from here, okay? So you don't go to Siri and say, Siri, can you make me a cup of coffee? Siri cannot do that because it's a voice in your, it, it, but you go to your coffee machine, type three buttons, and it makes espresso or 
hot chocolate or or a cappuccino, and it's figuring out how to do that. So we have a robot in the coffee machine to make the right coffee. We have a robot in your car that breaks for you. We have a robot in your uh, in your handheld that tells you how that interprets GPS signals and tells you where grandma's house is. This is how we do it. It's how we've always done it. So to say we're going to make a robot that'll be way more powerful in every possible way we can think of, I just don't see that happening. I mean, there was a story about uh Facebook uh, having AI that created its own language, and so they stopped it. I mean, and, and people, of course, that was sensationalized and posted all over the place, including on Facebook. But, like, is, w people, when they read that, they think, okay, they're learning their own language. They're going to have control over us. I mean, it, the brain starts going into these bizarre places. So I try to take a long, try to take a long view in this. Yeah. Every scientific discovery, technological discovery, is accompanied by people who think it's gonna be the end of life on Earth. Yes. Everything. Yes. Every single thing that's ever been discovered, ever. Somebody says, oh, that's the end of civilization. <laughs> so I don't I don't see AI as fundamentally different from that. And, I, and there are plenty of people who will argue strongly against me on that. Maybe you should get them on this program. <laughs> just personally, in my experience with computers, the arc that they have represented, the, even the speed with which these abilities are manifesting. I just see a life, a future where, yeah, computers are everywhere. But I'll tell you this, uh, there's certain things that you're not gonna replace with a computer. That we, there are people imagining that one day, I'm old enough to remember this in the, like the 60s, one day you won't need to prepare dinner, it'll all just be in a pill. You just eat the pill and that's, and so, wow. And then, and everything in your home will just be a button that you push and you push a button and everything will happen. I'm thinking, uh, is that even true today? Not really. That's not where it went. Right. It didn't go one button does it, no, no. Plus, I kind of like eating, okay? <laughs> and eating is a social center for, for, for our lives. I'm not gonna eat a pill and say, no, we're done with Thanksgiving dinner. So, so, so don't think that automation and computing power and, and is gonna completely replace everything that it is to be human. I just don't see that happening. Now, that being said, when I first saw Star Trek in the 1960s. Space, a final frontier. There's warp drives and photon torpedoes. I say, yeah, yeah, we're gonna have that in the 23rd century. And I remembered thinking to myself that as they walked towards doors, the doors automatically opened. And I said, no, nah, that'll never happen. No, nah, that, that's crazy. How does the door know? It can't know that you wanna go through it. How does it know? So, so maybe I'm not the one to be getting predictions of the future from. Fair enough. I just offer that as a caveat <laughs> right, right, my, right. on my predictions, yeah. I don't personally have the ability to explain why the earth is not flat but i also am okay with that because i feel like smarter people than me have figured it out they have a thing called science they they tell me they also provided me with my cell phone and i trust that they can figure it out but often on the internet i i've seen you engage in this i've seen other engage with this people who are not scientists i re, I, I like kyrie irving and uh who's the bob the rapper wasn't it him hurry 
Kyrie Irving also did it. But yeah, who sort of go, I don't believe the world. I don't I don't believe the world is round. And they show you a picture of the horizon or something. Is I, I see you sort of deal with that. And I know you don't think of yourself as a debunker. You're an educator. But does that ever get frustrating for you to have to sort of like it's like for me as a comedian when I have to talk to non-comedians about comedy and those people act like they know what they're talking about. I'm like, I, I don't want to talk to you about this. Does it get frustrating is my question. Not for me, no, it doesn't because I generally don't engage them. And we live in a free country. You can think whatever the hell you want, and I'm not even going to stop you. What matters is if you think the world is flat and you rise to power over legislation and laws and then take this profound level of ignorance that you carry with you, uh, protected as freedom of speech and thought by our Constitution, and now you create legislation that affects us all. That is the beginning of the end of an informed democracy. I feel like a lot of times people, because I mean the word theory is used in, in science so often, I don't think people always understand how it's used in, in science. So you'll hear people say, well, gravity is just a theory. What does it mean when something is a theory in science? Yeah, so the phrase just a theory should be expunged from the language. Right. <laughs> that, 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 that phrase actually has no meaning. Right. All right. So, uh, by the way, there are scientists who are also guilty of this, but because they haven't really thought about it, not because they're actively guilty of it. A theory is an understanding of the natural world that explains what is already what you already knew and has the power of prediction of things that you have yet to discover. Okay? So we have the theory of evolution, we have quantum theory, we have gravitational theory, we have um, thermodynamics theory. Uh, so all of this. And if you have an idea that is not tested, let's call that a hypothesis. Mm. So here's where some scientists are guilty. We have string theorists. We don't know if string theory is really going to play out in all the ways that people want, hope, and expect. So it really should be renamed the string hypothesis. It's a little late to rename it, I think, because right, right. they've been doing it for 30 years. But we haven't had to worry about this until people who didn't know science came in saying, oh, that's just a theory. And now they so now we've got to sort of more finely tune the vocabulary that we use to communicate with one another so that that confusion doesn't persist in the general public. Mm. So if you have a brand new idea, it's a hypothesis. If, if it's tested, retested, and tested again, and you predict something never before seen and it comes true, and that is persistent, it is elevated to the status of a theory. When is something a law? We, we've stopped calling things laws. Oh, that's good to know. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so laws, <laughs> we, we call things laws up into the uh, 1800s, and that's before we realized that what we thought was a law could be updated with deeper understandings of what goes on. Right. So, for example, we have a, a perfect example. Um, you would say Newton's laws of, of gravity, all right? Turns out, if you have very high gravity, uh, Newton's laws of gravity and motion, if you have heavy, very high gravity or very high speeds, Newton's laws break down entirely, and they don't work at all. You need Einstein's laws of gravity and motion. Mm. Those are Einstein's two theories of, of relativity, special theory of relativity and general theory of relativity, okay? We could call it the special law of relativity and the general law of relativity, but we just stopped using the word law. It was a candid recognition that what applies to everything you've seen and touched may only be a subset of what is a bigger truth you have yet to reach. So 
Newton's laws break down, but in only the extreme limits that you apply motion and gravity. In other words, you can write down Einstein's equations, and they work in every single case. But if you put in low gravity and low speeds into Einstein's equations, they become Newton's equations. Mm. So no, we did not discard Newton. Newton got subsumed into a deeper understanding of nature. That's the progress of science. And so, so we stop calling things laws, we, we embrace the concept of theory, and then we move forward. So any theory might one day be embedded in a deeper, broader scope theory than the ones that we're describing. But it's not just a theory that will one day be proven wrong. Right. Once well, something is yeah. experimentally determined yeah, yeah. to be true, it is not one day shown to be wrong. Right. There is something called objective truths in science. And as I've said before, the good thing about these truths is that they are true whether or not you believe in them. I believe in you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kamal. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And also earlier, mm-hmm. I just want to make it clear, the only reason I brought up seeing you at the Emmys is just so Hari could feel the pain of not having been to the Emmys. That's all. That's the only reason I brought that up. Oh, okay. He has found so many ways to bring that Emmy up. <laughs> it is completely irrelevant in this conversation. <laughs> that's why it's not even the same show. No, it's not the same. No, no, no. Right. My writing partner had, had written this joke uh, several years ago. Uh, some people like it. Some people like myself less so. you're so. a comedian also? That is a very painful question to ask. Me, I guess you should never ask someone if they're a comedian. That's, that's do you bad. realize that so, that is going to come up more than the <laughs> Emmy? Sorry, I should say it differently. I sh- so we, hey, hey I, producer Tim, we know the start of the show now. Uh-huh. No, let me re-ask that question. Yeah, um, uh, you're so funny. Are you? Are you, uh, are you also a comedian? How about that? That's how I should have said it. Yeah. That's, wow. If Kamau has Kamau editing company. power, that. That revision is not going to make the cut. <laughs> um, but yes, I'm a, I'm a comedian. This joke was written by my writing partner a, a, a long time ago, Ahamefle Oluo, and uh, I, I have never quite loved it, but uh, it was quoted in Esquire, so I wanted to run it by you. Uh, the, the joke is, what do you call Neil deGrasse Tyson pouring champagne all over his naked chest? Hmm. An astrophysi tits. Is that objectively funny? Astrophysitists. <laughs> that is correct. Yeah. Hmm. I think that that's that's. I think you you went too far on the off ramp to reach those points of humor. You see what I'm saying? I think the best humor is in the road while you're already there, and you encounter it without having to construct it. Mm. For here's one. Here's one that's in the in the on ramp. You okay. ready? Okay. Uh, I mean, in the road. Yeah. Okay. Never trust atoms. They make up everything. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair that's enough. right Fair there. Uh huh. Yeah. That's, that's in one. the road. That's in the road. That's in the. You got to say, well, Neil deGrasse Tyson. You got to know who he is, and take champagne, open it up, pour it on his chest. <laughs> it's like, okay, where am I? You know, I'm now on the in the next county. You know, I don't even remember where my interstate was, where I came from. So, I think if it's so, it is funny. Yeah. But yeah. I think you had to try too hard for it, mm. and so it didn't feel completely natural. Yeah, that's consistent with my style. Yes. Oh. Yes. <laughs> we got to work to get to the place where we can laugh at your joke. Correct. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. So that actually is. Come on, is that not accurate? That's totally accurate. That's totally accurate. 
Uh, okay, let me give you two other geeky. You want to be geeky? Uh -huh. I get, these are these are like. Okay, here's a, a very a quick off ramp, and you get right back on the ramp. Okay, okay. Uh, a photon. A photon checks into a hotel. The bellhop says, well, "Do you have any luggage?" And the photon says, "No, I'm traveling light." <laughs> <laughs> okay, simple. Right. Doesn't involve champagne. No, no. It's and then here's one who I actually know who wrote the joke. There are not many jokes out there where you know the origin. Okay, this was written by someone whose handle is science comedian. That's his Twitter handle. Huh. So Brian Mallow is his now. Right. Si there's several people who who are science comedians. He's he was like first out of the box. Got no, all I know the Twitter him. He, I know everything. him from the Bay Area. I know him very well, Brian Mallow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so this is back when the Higgs boson was discovered. This is the what some some have called the God particle. By the way, Nobel prizes have been given for it. It was discovered in the 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 particle accelerator in Switzerland. The, what's called the Large Hadron Collider. So this particle creates a field, and if you move through the field, it grants mass to the particles. And so it's a powerful particle when you think that that's what it does. So, but you have to know all of that for this joke to work, right? So it requires some, like the preamble. So, it, so it's really a hit at physics parties. If it's not a physics party, it almost is not worth it to earn the joke, okay? Higgs boson, now who's with me? walks into a church. The bartender, the priest. <laughs> the guy says, we don't allow Higgs bosons in here. The Higgs boson says, but without me, how can you have mass? <laughs> Great. I will accept that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Brian is going to be so excited that his joke was quoted by you on this podcast. So good, good on work this there, podcast. Sir. There you go. Uh, just for for what it's worth, just to know that I appreciate who and what you are and represent. In spite of my joking with you about it on my TV show and radio show and podcast, Star Talk, uh, I always have as a permanent fixture a co-host who is a professional stand-up comedian, and that comedian is the is is a valve of levity in yeah. the conversation that might otherwise um, be mired in the valves of gravity. <laughs> so, but it's the two together, the mixture of those two, that give me just the right balance that I seek in delivering and uh, bringing the sci science down to earth, as I've tried to do in in this book, uh, uh, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. Hold up! Wait a minute. Uh, Hari, do you have something to add right now? Yes, uh, I actually have been on Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast, Star Talk, in the role of a comedian. Ouch. God, it's like the Van Jones episode all over again. No, this is worse. This is way, way worse. I, I, I wanna, I'd like to know whether I'm delusional in thinking that I, I have some humorous places in here. If I get a professional opinion from you, no. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to you read, pick any chapter. It doesn't matter. Okay. Doesn't matter. Pick any chapter, and uh, not the last chapter because that's very serious and deep. Okay. Pick any other chapter, okay. and I want you in your comedy journals to say, "Hey, Neil, maybe you know he's an honorary. You know, we'll give him an honorary degree because uh, <laughs> he's he can turn a phrase every now and then that makes you <laughs> smile." Okay. Okay.
All right. All I'm right. glad you guys worked it out after the big beef you had over Mars. I'm glad you guys brought it back together at the end of the podcast. <laughs> it is good to have a, a professional comedian as a co-host. So thanks, Kamau, for, for, no for being that for me. No problem. No problem. I just opened to a random page in the book. Uh-huh. Can I just read it? Absolutely. So, no, it's not from the world of comedy, but it's like, it's just reality check, okay? And I'm talking about, behold my recurring nightmare. Are we, too, missing some basic pieces of the universe that once were? What part of the cosmic history book has been marked access denied? What remains absent from our theories and equations that ought to be there, leaving us groping for answers that we may never find? Oh, my God. We got to read the chapter to know why that's the last paragraph of that chapter. Yeah, but that's, that's beautiful. Wasn't that funny though? Just trying to. No, no. Just... <laughs> 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 All right, no, no, you calling me out now? All right, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, he, I'm just trying to get your, your back, Harry. Call... I'm trying to get your back. Oh, oh, thank you, sir. Okay, I'm talking about the the colliding black holes that were discovered by the gravity gravitational wave detector, and this is big, long, run-on paragraph that describes the history. That's exactly what was observed. The gravitational waves of the first detection were generated by a collision of black holes in a galaxy 1.3 billion light years away. And at a time when Earth was teeming with simple single-celled organisms, while the ripple moved through space in all directions, Earth would, after another 800 million years, evolve complex life, including flowers and dinosaurs and flying creatures, as well as a branch of vertebrates called mammals. Among these mammals, a sub-branch would evolve frontal lobes and complex thought to accompany them. We call them primates. A single branch of these primates would develop a genetic mutation that allowed speech, and that branch, Homo sapiens, would invent agriculture and civilization and philosophy and art and science. All in the last 10,000 years, Ultimately, one of its 20th century scientists would invent relativity out of his head and predict the existence of gravitational waves. A century later, technology capable of seeing these waves would finally catch up with the prediction. And just days before the gravity wave, which had been traveling for 1.3 billion years, washed over the earth and was detected. Yes, Einstein was a badass. <laughs> it was, it was a, Einstein predicted these things. That's all. It was, so. a, it was a bit of a long setup, Neil. No! <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I like I like the jokes that you don't need to you know go, get off the on ramp. I don't like the jokes that you have to get off the. It's, like, just it's good. It's just not, there. It's good. It's just not astrophysy tits. Good, but you keep working, Neil. You keep working. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll keep working on the fizzy tits. Yeah. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for joining Dude, us. Dude, thanks for having me. Thanks for talking about the book. It's been out a few months. We're all very happy that it's doing well. So Fantastic. thanks for being a part of that. Right? Thank Absolutely. you. Now go talk about my book so my book does as well as your book. Thank you. No. <laughs> <laughs> Out, what did you learn today? I learned that Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk is a geek safe space. Well, not for me, because he forgot who I was. <laughs> hey, Harry, what did you learn today? I learned that Neil deGrasse Tyson really likes to explain things through a cosmic lens to help put everyday life into perspective. 
like the fact that 20 people dying makes world headlines, compare that to the Second and First World War, that's pretty insignificant considering thousands of people were dying on a daily basis because of those wars. It's weird, when I say it, it feels really sad and depressing. But when <laughs> yes. he said it, it made complete sense. I, I felt better about myself. Yeah, yeah. I learned that Neil has hope of being able to reason with Donald Trump in a business sense. Huh. huh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that assumes that Donald Trump was a good businessman and not a guy who inherited a lot of money and then just filed bankruptcy every few years when it didn't when he lost all that money. He's not a bad businessman. He's a bad businessman. Ooh. Yeah, savage. I made that up right now. Savage. I learned uh, that the universe is 14 billion years old, so it's not likely that what is happening in our lifetime is unique. You know, it's strange. Again, when he said it, felt strangely optimistic. And again, I feel really sad again when I repeated it. Yeah. <laughs> I learned that Neil thinks that if you're smart and cool, you should consider thinking about how off-putting that may be and how we can bridge intellectual and philosophical divides. Huh. You hate that idea, don't you? Yeah, I don't think that coming off as smart and cool is is off-putting. Wait, <laughs> was he insulting me? <laughs> uh, pretty much the whole interview was like an astrophysicist roasting you. That's pretty much what happened. What did I do to him? I'm, I'm trying to figure out who did he confuse me with. Uh, I think he confused you with no one. No one he'd ever met before. Oh my god. And then he tried to be nice at the end, but the damage was done. <laughs> I've learned that if you like his new book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, then you might be ready to take a step up to his other book called Welcome to the Universe, an Astrophysical Tour. That's in the big kids section. I mean, I walked into the interview knowing that I'm a really small part of the universe, but after talking to Neil deGrasse Tyson and my ego being deflated, <laughs> I found out how small I actually was. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thanks to Neil deGrasse Tyson. You can follow Neil at Neil Tyson on Twitter. That's N-E-I-L-T-Y-S-O-N. And keep sending us Twitter and Facebook messages. We love them. So keep those comments and questions coming using the hashtag Politically Reactive. And rate us on iTunes. And we still have a limited supply of new T-shirts, so don't miss out. And visit podswag.com slash PR or podswag.com slash Politically Reactive. And summer may be over, but the holidays are just around the corner. So pick up a copy of my still newish book, The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell, at your favorite local bookstore or at wkamaubell.com. And, you know, when you buy a copy of Neil's book, just buy mine too. See if I can get on the bestsellers list. Also, if you're in Toronto or the Toronto area, catch me at JFL 42 Toronto's Comedy Festival on September 29th and 30th. On the 29th, I'm doing an hour of stand-up, my new hour. And on the 30th, I'm having a live political conversation with some of the comedians there. Stay tuned. I'm still on tour so many dates. I'll be in Toronto at JFL Toronto, not when Kamau's there, September 26th and 27th. I'll be in the United Kingdom, London, on October 10th and 11th at Soho Theater. The St. Louis Helium on, on October 19th. We got Boston, Massachusetts, November 3rd at the Wilbur. So many shows. Go to harikundabolu.com for more details. Big shows coming up in December. December 1st in Oakland, California at the Fox Theater. December 13th in Portland, Oregon at the Aladdin Theater. And of course, this is the big one, December 15th 
at the Neptune in Seattle. Seattle, I can't quite tell you what this is about, but I need you at the Neptune Theater on December 15th. Something special is going to happen. Harikundabolu.com. Politically Reactive is a production of Topic and distributed by Earwolf. Our executive producers are Lisa Liangang and Lethal Malad. The show is produced by Tim Barnes and Laura Flynn. The show is engineered by Dan Gallucci. Thanks to Isabel Robertson for additional help this week. For recording help this week, thanks to Jesse Nichols at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, Little Everywhere Studio in Los Angeles, and First Look Media Studios in New York. And thanks, as always, to Brontes Purnell for providing the music for the show. Thanks for listening to Politically Reactive. Dada is the best. My name is Sammy, and my dad is the best. I agree with that. <laughs>